This is WexCast from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. For this episode, we're sharing a discussion from October 2019 between Wex Film Video Director David Philippi and the directors of the Oscar shortlisted documentary American Factory, Julia Reichert and Stephen Bognar. The talk came about as part of Julia Reichert, A Life in Film, a retrospective of the nearly 50-year career of the Academy Award-nominated Ohio filmmaker. The series was organized by the WEX, and it's touring to venues nationwide through June 2020. If you missed our screening but you've seen American Factory on Netflix, this is a terrific companion piece. Let me introduce tonight's special guest. Julia Reichert has produced one of the most significant bodies of work in American film history. In films including Growing Up Female, her first from 1971, Union Maids, Seeing Red, which we're screening tomorrow night at 7, The Last Truck, and tonight's film American Factory, to name just a few, Julia has created a cinematic history of everyday working people told through their respective personal stories. Along with partners Steve Bognar and Jim Klein, Julia has received about every award you can think of. An Emmy for Lying in the House, three Oscar nominations, the Best Directing Award at Sundance for this evening's film, and the USA Artist Fellowship along with Steve. What some of you may not know is what a special place Julia and Steve and Jim have as independent filmmakers in Ohio. They have all been teachers and mentors to filmmaking students and emerging filmmakers, and they have often brought their students to the WEX for film screenings or to hear from visiting filmmakers. We often refer to them as the godparents of indie film in Ohio. They are always there to offer support to any young filmmaker who needs it, and same with guidance. It has been one of the great rewards of my time at the WEX to have been able to work on this with Julia and Steve. It was incredible to go back and watch her first films in quick succession. They are now 40 or 50 years old, but they remain urgent and vibrant and continue to speak to the issues we face as a society even today. And no one predicted what a sensation American Factory would become. An award at Sundance, picked up by Netflix, and a little coffee time with President Obama and Mrs. Obama. If you haven't seen the film on Netflix, there's a nice extra um, with the four of them um, sharing a coffee together. It's definitely been a whirlwind ride for Julia and Steve this year. Before Julia takes the stage, I would like to thank my colleagues in marketing, design, and I'd like to point out um, the book that you were handed um, when you came in. Our design department did a a terrific job, and there's great essays um, within about Julia's career. Um, I'd like to thank our development and patron services department and tech services for their support of this series, director Johanna Burton and past director Sherry Gelden for all that they have done to make this happen, and my colleagues in film and video, Jennifer Lang, Chris Stoltz, Paul Hill, Alexis McCrimmon, Deborah Lamack, Adam Elliott, and our incomparable projectionist Bruce Bartu. I'd also like to thank Netflix and Chicken and Egg Pictures for all of their support in this endeavor. And we're all so excited that this night is finally here. I hope you'll join me in welcoming Julia Riker. This is so cool. Okay. So, I really love the Wexner Center. I've said before, you guys are sitting in our favorite seats. I didn't go to film school, but I did have the Wexner Center to learn from. 
Uh, I don't want to speak too long. I want to thank you guys for coming to see this film on a big screen, even though it is available on Netflix. But it's actually, you know, we filmmakers, we make these works for the big screen with really good sound, and we try to make them cinematic. So thank you for understanding that. Um, I want to thank our friends at Participant Media who um, helped us make the film, get us over the finish line. I also want to thank um, Participant Media. You know, they made uh, RGB, they made Roma, they made, high, they made uh, Spotlight. They, they make great films that they want people to participate in. So they're, they're wonderful. I also want to thank our new friends at uh, Netflix, and especially the folks at Higher Ground, which is the Obama's production company, Higher Ground. Isn't that a great name? Um, there is a thread to my work over 50 years, which tends to touch on labor, and also women, and uh, gender and race in America. A lot of the films, most of them are made right here in Ohio, or they're at least in the Midwest. So um, hopefully you can see some of the other films. Most of the team that made this film is from Ohio. Um, actually, Melissa Godoy is here, who's our line producer. Um, Steve Bognar is going to be here afterwards. And, my, and Leela Reichert-Klein is in the back. She was one of our advisors. All Ohio people. So we can do great things here. And it's wonderful that the Wexner recognizes us. I hope you get one of these books. It's not just a program, it's a whole book. Um, so see you afterwards. Thank you. Um, well, congratulations again on the film. Um, some people might not know that the, the series that we're presenting this month actually started at MoMA um, in May. So the last time we were on the stage together was three months ago um, at MoMA, and so much has happened for you since that time, and it's just, it's so, it's so unusual for you. I mean, this film is getting exposure like none of your other films in the past, and if you could maybe just talk a little bit about um, how this film has been different for you as, as filmmakers and what you've been going through and putting up with um, over the last few months. Well, you know, I'll let Steve talk to that, but I got to say one thing that has happened since. So the film was shown in Dayton, so people in the plant got to see it. Were you there, Melissa? No. Okay. Anyway, so people in the plant got to see it. We had a thousand people in the audience. A lot of workers at Fuya management, and um, there's been a lot of discussion on the floor about the about the company and about the. But the funny thing I want to tell you is we heard that. Uh, people go, were going around with duct tape over their mouths. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of cool. The day after. Uh, it's, uh, the film is, has taken off far more than we ever thought. What's, the thing we're really excited about is the film is an underground viral hit in China, uh, which is really meaningful. Uh, yeah, we... Um, we, did, we talked and considered, do we submit the film to the censorship review board in China or not? And the reality is, they probably would want to make cuts to the film, that, and we would not want to make cuts to the film, so why should we submit it? And then we said, let's just not. But then concurrently, suddenly, uh, you know, Yi Chen and Mijia, the, the two, our co-producers, and 
the field producers, Yan and, and Lulu and Danny, are emailing us saying, the, the film's like, people are talking about the movie in China. And then it kind of kept growing. And apparently there's been like over 16 million social media posts about the movie. Uh, already, and then The Economist, the British newspaper, did an article about the response in China and had quotes from some of those social media postings that said things like, uh, we all know China's success has been built on the exploitation of labor, of working people, or um, the sad thing is how normalized these long hours have become to us. And that's the kind of conversation we always hoped the film, all of us, I mean, uh, Mijia Chen, all of us, hope the film would spark, and that's been really cool. One thing that strikes me so much about the film, um, some people have commented, I think Michelle Obama even said something like this, how, she didn't use this phrase obviously, but fair and balanced, like how you show all perspectives, and I understand what she's trying to say, but at the same point, I mean, there's a pretty strong point of view in the film, you know, whether you're a Chinese worker and have to you know, you're exploited in one way, or you're an American worker and you're exploited in, in another way. I mean, that's the point it's of like view of the film. The, what is bad is the lack of voice, is mm -hmm. the lack of agency that has occurred more and more in the United States. I hope there becomes more and more agency in China than there is now. Um, Michelle did say, Michelle, I shouldn't call her that. The first lady, <laughs> I don't know her really. No, but we were instructed before we met them, don't call them Michelle and Barack. They're the first lady and the president. Or POTUS and FLOTUS. <laughs> anyway, she said the film is not an editorial, which is true, I think. It's, it, it doesn't have an ax to grind. I think it has a point of view yeah. uh, in that, you're right, it's kind of pro-worker, wouldn't you say? I mean, that's... That's what, that's what we feel. I think we're empathetic with everybody. I think everybody in the film is trying to do something very difficult. The chairman's trying to do something very difficult. The managers are trying to do something very difficult. The workers, both Chinese and American, are trying to do something very difficult. You know, learn a whole new job and deal with managers who don't, the, the Americans, um, who don't have the same sense of what work life is at all, you, you kind of heard that in there. Um, everybody's trying to do something hard, so we had empathy for everybody, actually. It wasn't, a, you know, it well, was really true. When we were, yeah. So we, fil we were filming the movie for about a year, and we just realized, we just started feeling this huge um, gulf between us and Wong. We couldn't talk to Wong, we couldn't really talk to Leon, or, and the chairman, right? We were always having to go through translators, and we realized we needed, to, we needed collaborators who are actually Chinese. Mm -hmm. Not just uh, Americans who speak mm -hmm. Mandarin Chinese, but actually culturally Chinese mm -hmm. and fluent. And we started a search process and pretty quickly found Mijia and Chen, and then one or both of them started coming to Ohio every month uh, from that point forward. And we also were in China with Mijia and Chen uh, filming, and they were crucial. Uh, and and we realized we wanted to try to tell the film from multiple perspectives, try to show each perspective with respect, even if they disagreed with each other, that it would be a, the kind of film that asks you to um, weigh uh, different points of view that don't necessarily mm -hmm. agree. Well, and some people, you, you let them have their point of view and say what they're going to say, even if right. it doesn't really look, you know... To us, reflect, it doesn't to look us. Good, but yeah. you know, in, 
some of the things that the chairman says, you know, about how we're all Chinese and mm -hmm. we have to work for the mother country, mm -hmm. we think that's a little sketchy and a little bit appalling, but th that's very typical in China. Right. People expect that. Right. And we get And then a, it's, you know, but then Trump does that here, so yeah, it's like... <laughs> we're the best country in the world, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we're not immune to that kind of appeal to our nationalism. Right. It's easy to... We, we did not want the film to look at China's amazing growth of the last 30, 40 years through a lens of anxiety. Because it's easy for Americans to have anxiety about, wow, China's just doing so great and we're not doing good anymore. And we didn't want to have that kind of uh, point of view. We wanted to, to really, you know, neutrally, as neutrally as we can say, yeah, this is amazing what's happening in China. Hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out of poverty. And they're proud of that. It, it comes at great yeah. cost, environmental right, cost. Right. Uh, Obviously, labor, uh, you know, it's, it, the labor conditions are tough, but we, um, we didn't want to have that sort of Midwestern unease about it. Sure. Could you talk about, there's this, I, I don't think I really noticed it, I mean, this is probably the fourth time I've seen the film, but there's a moment towards the end of the film where um, it's uh, a middle-aged guy, he's maybe 45 or, or 50, and he's talking about the American dream yeah, and you know he here's a he he was probably one of the people that lost his job at the GM plant, and he's disillusioned Timmy. with this with the current job, and he's in his he's middle age, and he's still talking about that. I just found that really heartbreaking this time, and um, that you're still hoping for that to be realized. At he that said point it would be un-American not to believe yeah. in the American dream. Timmy, yeah, he is probably fifty. Mm -hmm. He's fifty-four. Oh, fifty-four. Okay, he's the one who's playing softball. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I mean, I'm sure you encountered lots of people like that in the film yeah. and what you came away with. And then there's what we think about the American dream, too. Mm -hmm. it's, it was, this was hard to, in that way to, mm -hmm. to like realize year after year the people who, the same people who used to earn a real good wage, right. like $30 an hour, are now making 12 They started mm -hmm. at 12 mm -hmm. then they got to 14 you know, and that's across the board. That's not just at this one plant. I mean, there are actually much lower-paying jobs People who, when we finished the last truck, and this is talking about the loss of the American dream and the beating down of American workers, there were people who, at the end of the last truck, 10 years before, when the economy crashed, they would say, well, there's jobs out there, but they pay $9, they pay $10. I'm not taking a $10 an hour job. And then you run into that same person, like two years later, what you doing? I'm working at a warehouse, you know, with a, mm -hmm. a gun mm -hmm. and, you know, taking stuff off. And um, how much are you making? $10 an hour. Mm -hmm. But they had, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's just yeah. the whole come down of yeah. the American working class. We're becoming a low-wage country. Yeah. At the, at the right? same time, I, you know, we don't want, uh, we hope the film, we hope the film sparks questions about it, but doesn't Not to leave feed. you heartbroken, uh, you know, Working people are around the world, not just the U.S., are under more pressure. Wages are stagnant. Rights are eroded. Safety is eroded. But that doesn't have to be that way, you know? I mean, we are inherently optimistic because we've lived through... I mean, you know, when I was a kid, the, you know, the Cold War was going to go on forever. We've seen, uh, you know, I mean, Nelson Mandela not only got out of prison, he became the president of South Africa. We have marriage equality now. And the impossible things that seemed like, oh, that'll never happen, happened. And a, a more just world can happen. It's not, you know, 
it's not impossible in any way. It does way. take organizing, though. Yes. <laughs> it takes organizing. I know this is sort of a, you know, it's the film is kind of upsetting. I, I think it leaves you thinking about a lot of different things and doesn't deliver a message, um, which I don't think we could. Given three years, and we're in the middle of, of a huge tectonic change in the global economy and global culture, we're like we were witnessing it in front of us. It, it wouldn't be a good thing with this film. Every film's different to kind of come out with this is what we have to do. Mm -hmm. I'm not even really fond of those titles at the end. We put them in at the very, very end, um, but I don't, I don't like them. No, it's a, it's a film of hard truths, you know. Yeah. You have, aren't you the director? <laughs> I know. Well, there's other people involved. Now. Exactly. Let's just put it back. You, you, you can cut them. Let's take some questions from the audience. Yeah, really. Right here. Um, I want to say I liked the end titles about the automation and loss of jobs. Okay. Because we're poised on the seismic brink that millions of truck drivers will lose their jobs because of automated driverless vehicles. Oh. It will be a seismic effect on the American working class. So it's actually very pertinent. But what I wanted to commend you for was how intimate the film felt. And my company here in Columbus, I worked at 35 years, would never allow a film crew <laughs> access that you got there at Fuyao. And so Can my, you guys hear him? Yeah, my, my question okay. for you is, what advantage did Fuyao think it was gonna get by having, so to speak, the dirty laundry aired? And I'll just float a quick theory. I'm wondering if the Chinese government said something to them that there are increasing trade tensions between China and the U.S. And maybe if we look, Chinese companies look more human or whatever, that that will help politically. So what was Fuyao getting from a Well, you know, this all took place, of course, before the trade wars began. I mean, way before. We, it, when we, and it, it was all this stuff all those kind of processes that we are facing now started way before like the Obama presidency and will go on after the current president is gone. But um, I think, you know, that's a really good question. What did they think? Well, here's what I think. I think the chairman is proud of what he does. Uh, I think he took a real risk coming to the US. Uh, his family didn't want him to do it. A lot of people in China didn't think he should do it. That was his like last big thing. Uh, he's, you know, he's exactly my age. He's 73 years old now. Um, and I think he wanted his legacy to be shown. I also didn't, don't think he realized how difficult it was going to be. And how, I don't think he realized all the American laws that he would have to adhere to. Uh, I don't think he really understood union stuff. I mean, the, the Chinese were taught to fight the union by the Americans. It's not a Chinese thing. I mean, they don't have those issues. Um, so that's, I think, they th I think he's um, a maverick and a philosophical, he's a very philosophical sort of guy, he is a Buddhist, um, that he felt this would be a historical record of his, that would be good for his legacy. He really likes the film. I mean, I'm sure there are things he doesn't like. I know there are. He's spoken about it. But he wants to help us get the film out in China. Yeah. I mean, I mean it's partly, it's partly you, he's happy that it's gotten to be a big film and he's getting a lot of attention. You know, there's that, too. There is, yeah. Uh, but it was easy to say yes in the early days because there was so much optimism in the early days. And then one phenomenon that happens with documentaries, we've seen this in other films, is that if you're on the inside of a story at the beginning, 
things get harder gradually, and people are like, "Well, you're here, you 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 know, we're we. I mean, we filmed. We were there for three years. We were there relentlessly. And if you're on the inside, people say you're you're part of it, you know. And it's 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 not like suddenly you're this alien who's appeared. I hope that answers your question. Anyway, yeah. Right here in front. A question about the, uh, I guess one, one, I guess one person uh, who is not exactly, uh, um, I guess sharply challenged within the film is uh, the, uh, Barack Obama. You know, they said that the film was made during the Barack presidency era. You know, and um, then he came in and he had a great choice and the opportunity to do something really wonderful and great for the United States. For instance, when the GM factory closed, you know, the United States government could have just bought the factory and uh, you know operated as a state enterprise with the union. And he could have done that, and nobody would have challenged him, you know. And mm-hmm. because at the time, capitalism was down. <laughs> and he could have uh, developed uh, universal health insurance so that the workers who lose jobs you know, would have something to fall back, fall back on so they would feel more comfortable fighting for their rights, not, not having to accept you know, $9 jobs, $10 jobs. You know. And I like that the film is called American Factory, even though the, the boss is Chinese, but what shaped the environment in which you know, the workers exploited basically American laws. You know? Then American workers get fired you know, for organizing unions. You know, American laws said, yes, it's okay to be played. Right. You know, so are you wondering what... So yeah. Well, thank you. We, you know, we filmed the entire election of 2016 during the course of the making of the movie. Ohio, as we know, is a battleground state. We filmed Trump rallies, uh, a Clinton rally. Uh, There was a Kasich rally in the factory that we filmed. And then we were editing the movie it all in 2018, two years later. The larger sort of issues you're raising, the critique we could have of any administration, we just felt like that, unless it was organic to the footage, unless like people in the movie were bringing that up, it would be a real imposition, we would be imposing our editorial point of view on a film that we're trying to make organic out of the cinema verite material we were filming, it didn't feel right. And real quick, um, you know, if you remember during the Obama presidency, after one year he lost the Senate because of Ted Kennedy died. And he got through health care. He did not, Obama did not do a lot for labor. But it's, we have to realize now, we have, we have elections coming up, that um, we have to really ask, if we care about the middle, the blue collar middle class, and we don't want to become a low wage country, and we want to have a middle class, right? We have to ask these candidates, what are they specifically going to do about labor law? You see labor law being broken left and right here. They get away with it. Um, where's you know? Where's the NLRB? Where's OSHA? Where's you know all these government agencies? We have to strengthen labor law. We have to strengthen the possibilities for unions to organize. I mean, I think that's very basic, and that's something we have to ask candidates uh, and try to you know get people in office who will fight for workers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, they, people did, uh, and it wasn't just, I mean, the supervisors helped get rid of people, too, the American supervisors. It, was, it wasn't uh, because of the film, though. The lawsuits oh. were underway. They were, they, the workers, like Jill, filed a wrongful termination suit, and it was, she got a settlement earlier this year. Uh, the film was done. Um, I mean, all, we didn't say that in the film. Cynthia, who was later lifting the heavy glass, she later got fired. She also got a settlement. The company acknowledges no wrongdoing, but they did give monetary settlements to those two workers and other, uh, at least one other worker. That should be what? It should be mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to... We, we the, yeah. the last three things we mentioned, we debated a lot what, should, what we should mention and what we shouldn't, you know. We want to be fair. But, you know, it is kind of a slap on the hand to the company to pay mm -hmm. a worker $12,000 who got fired and didn't have a job for six months. You know, but they will settle. Um, they also settled the OSHA fines. They've gotten really big. I mean, I, we're glad that company's there in the sense that it's jobs. It's better jobs than are around. Uh, it's a very hard job. Um, but 2,000 people, 2,200 um, Americans work there, you know, every day. And, and some of the wages now are going up. Like, if you've been there several years, if you've managed to stick it through, your wages could be up to 19. I think they top out at 1950. 1950. Sort of like separation where um, most of the full time positions are based in New York or LA. Right. And so um, you've obviously made a very deliberate choice as filmmakers That's a good question. We love Ohio, actually. We're happy to live here. We live in a, you know, Yellow Springs. Um, we, our living expenses are, are low. We're in Ohio, we own our house, we own our cars, we own a camera, we own a car. <laughs> so we can pursue, I mean, for us at least, we're not hired by anybody. You know, we, we, we can stick our foot in the water in a film story and see, it happened with The Last Truck, it happened with Lion in the House, it happened with all these films, and then see what's there, and then eventually if we realize we need funding, then we've, we've been working a year, we have something to show uh, and talk about. So I, I like working here. I like being around regular folks and not... If I lived in New York, all my friends would be filmmakers. And... You know? <laughs> and a huge part of our process is time. We just, I mean, we go, that we're there again and again. And if you're East or West Coast and you're going to fly to... Touch, if you're going to try to tell one a, a story like this, you have to be there. You can't not live here, I, I think. Well, and I think that speaks to what people respond to in your films. I mean, there are so many documentaries, I mean, really popular, award-winning documentaries where people maybe stumble upon even the story. They kind of helicopter in, they do, yeah. they, they make the film, and then they're, you know, and, and that's not to say it's good or bad, it's just there are films like that, and yours, you are, like you're saying, there's regularity, there's constant contact, there's an intimacy that's built up. That might have been one of the really good things about Free Solo. For some reason, I'm thinking about those people have known each other for, for years. Mm -hmm. It's a very intimate film. It's a scary film, too. Free Solo, did you guys see that? Yeah. yeah question. Hi. Um, 
experience, you know, if there were some scenes that were cut um, after the vote, after they voted on whether they were doing the mass or not. Because um, I know there were two or three comments where they were like, oh, I'm just worried about my job, I'm worried about even getting the income, and what those stories were. You mean after the vote? I mean, after the vote, we went around, we did a lot of interviews with uh, everyone. Like, what did you think of the reaction? What did you, you think of the result? How do you feel? Um, there's comments we didn't include because they, they ultimately felt like re repetitive of what we did include. Uh, so, I mean, there's so many great people and, and, and individual stories, character uh, portraitures that we wanted to include, but then the film would be much longer. Uh, I mean, this was a heartbreaking film to make for us because we fell in love with so many amazing people who trusted us to, you know, tell their story. We edited portraits of them that are similar to what, you know, Shanae and Bobby and Jill have in the film, but we couldn't include them because then the film becomes four hours long. and it, it, We didn't want, you know, we just didn't want it to be. Um, but what we do, what we try to include was try to be representative of, of what we heard about why the vote went the way it did. We think it had a lot to do with the anti-union mm -hmm. consultants who were, who were hired. And it, it, they were stronger than even were making it look. There were five of them, and they started coming in like a year before the vote. It wasn't, or more than a year. It wasn't like they were suddenly brought in when the vote was announced. They had been there and been there and been there. They really intensified their campaign at the day after the vote was announced. All five of them showed up, and they started having these mandatory meetings, and well, which they'd already been having. So I think that had a huge impact on the vote. I think people were really intimidated, actually, especially as she, the woman said, the younger ones, who don't have that experience of like my dad worked for a union or I've been in a union. No. Mm -hmm. No, no, and that's something we need to, I'm always happy to talk more about. In fact, the next film, 9 to 5, is going to have a lot more about that because we've realized how the audience's people just don't know what it, even what it is. So, right, Melissa? We're working on that right now. There's a reason why there's a 40-hour work week. Yeah, and yeah. there's weekends. Right? Yeah. Not, not yet. You mean the union? There's been, you have to wait a year and there's, there may be more interest uh, now, but I don't know. The UAW may try again or another union may try, but so far we haven't heard of a, a real campaign yet. What, one could, if I could just ask one question, the scene where the person starts carrying the sign through the factory, like how typically does something start? something start? At a factory, like, the, the you know... That is atypical. Okay. Normal, yeah, someone walking through the factory mm -hmm. like Norma Ray mm -hmm. is... is um, <laughs> that is not the usual way to spark... No. Um, it, it, what, hap what we observed happening mm -hmm. is that it's, it's more like one-on-one -on -one conversations. Mm -hmm. are, you, how, are you... How are you feeling about mm -hmm. the job? Did you see that that person... What happened to them? That makes me mad. How do you feel? And it's quiet because... Organizers, in, you know, workers who are or, trying to or, organize in, within the plant can be targeted, as we see. But there must be something that tips it, you know, that... There were moments of, 
Oh, there were times frustration. when it, it seemed like really pro-union in there. Mm -hmm. And there are other times when it just kind of went away. Mm -hmm. I mean, they would change the policy. There, okay. There's a point system. It's kind of um, elaborate, but you can be, it's like demerits in high school. You know, it's like if you get five points, you are fired. But then they change it to eight points, and then they change it to three points. And then it was like whip-lashing mm -hmm. people around, and people were just getting so there frustrated. Crazy, there, were, there were crazy policies. I want to see if you like the score after I finish this sentence. There were policies like, you, if you were, even if you were like in the emergency room, you couldn't call in and call off. Or if, even if you brought a doctor's note back, you know, you were sick, you would get points. And people got so mad. I mean, things... Then, then, then it would change. Yeah, like Three change months it. later, yeah. they would change it because so many people got mad or quit or whatever. Mm -hmm. At one point, uh, really early on, and I, it, we, we didn't even film it. We heard about it after the fact. They had a meeting where they were going to say, okay, everyone who works on first shift, you're going to have to work second shift and then third shift, and we're all going to rotate shifts. Uh, so second shift yeah. people would then work third and first and then back to... And well, it's like everyone was like, yeah. no. I mean, they, they rose up <laughs> mm -hmm. in a spontaneous... I mean, I wish we we'd been there, but they rose up in a spontaneous, like, hell no, mm -hmm. and then the company said, mm -hmm. okay, we won't do that. So, I mean, just, you know, I mean, to, to, you know, to put ourselves in the shoes of this, of Fuya, of the management, they were learning and making mistakes as they went. They freely admit it. And they were trying to do right by people uh, in some, to some mm -hmm, extent, mm -hmm. but they were also finding their way. Mm -hmm. So Couple what about more? the score? Anybody, the score, the music. Wasn't that great? Yeah, it's an unusual documentary score. There's a lot of melody, it's big, you know. There's no violins. <laughs> no violins in this film, or guitars. Yes, sir, you had a question? Oh, he's asking how we found the composer. There's another question. Yeah. Did the company in Dayton become profitable because of automation? Uh, no. Automation is a, is a slow wave that's happening in, within Fuya, but they just gradually became profitable. And maybe, maybe that was a factor, but it's not like because of it. Uh, the, you know, they finally, uh, the, the Americans started getting more productive. The, 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 the management stopped putting resources in, and so at some point they tipped into profit. That's a good question. I, I should ask that. We should ask that. What, what was the big factor? I think they would just say time. And the workers getting, you know, they're learning whole new skills, right? Yeah, learning, learning curve. Yeah. A couple more. Someone had a question about the score? You did. Oh. The composer. We lo we, I love the score. I mean, I... It, yeah, he did a great job. Chad Cannon, very young guy, born and raised in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, this is his first feature? His first feature. He's only done like really small stuff before this. We, uh, we, we interviewed a lot of composers, mostly well-known, like more well-known than <laughs> him. Um, well, I'll just tell a little story. Should I tell that story? Okay, so I was at, you know, I go to the Cincinnati Symphony sometimes, beautiful symphony. You've been there, I don't know. Beautiful symphony, yeah. And, um, a, and you know, we were, had been talking about music and the tone and what kind of instruments we wanted, as you do. Um, and a bunch of people who play woodwinds came on the stage, and it was a Mozart short piece called Gran Partida. It's just a very short piece, 17 minutes, I'm sorry, about 20 minutes, 17 woodwinds. 
and one French horn and one double bass. And when the music started coming up, we were sitting above, it just suddenly struck me like a flash of lightning, like this is the kind of sound we need. So every time we interviewed a composer, we referred to that and they all loved that and they all got it, you know. Um, Chad did a really cool thing. He started playing around with glass as a musical instrument and we kind of loved that, right? He also, before we hired him, he started sending us ideas. <laughs> and that was, and we, we liked them a lot. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I, I just dashed this off. What do you think? And we're like, oh, that's good. Which other, the other candidates weren't doing. Mm-hmm. You know, filmmaking, as we all know, is super collaborative. I want to give a quick it's shout out. Our, the other cinematographers on this film were not just camera people. They were documentarians. We would, Julia, Aubrey, Eric, Jeff, and I, we would go to the plant and we would split up. And we would, you know, one person goes here, one person goes there. And we're there on our own, but as a camera person in a documentary environment, a cinema verite environment, you're making constant choices and decisions about who to follow, what to ask, when not to talk, where to put, where's the camera got to be, what's going to happen next, who's mad at whom, all that kind of stuff that a director would do, our, our team had to do. And then we also had a brilliant editor Lindsay Utes, mm-hmm. who we found, luckily we found, and who took 1,200 hours of footage and within 18 months, you know, found, cut, and cut the hell out of the movie. Was and unstoppable found it. and brilliant, yeah. And the, uh, t- the cinema, uh, most of the team was like Wright State graduates, except for like the composer, Jeff, our nephew, but we worked on each other's films. And uh, who else? Like a couple people. They were mostly kids from Wright State. Well, our students. The series continues tomorrow night with um, one of Julia's great films, Seeing Red, a new restoration of that. Julia will be back for Q&A. Sunday we're showing The Last Truck and Union Maids, and Julia will be back for that as well. And the series continues throughout October. Don't forget our documentary festival, Unorthodox, in the middle of the month. And both Steve and Julia will be here for that as well. Okay, see ya. Thank you. That was filmmakers Julia Reichert and Stephen Bognar in conversation with Wex Film Video director David Philippi. The blog post attached to this podcast at wexarts.org slash blog has a link with info on where the series will be screening. And from there, you can explore what's up next at the Wex. For the Wexner Center for the Arts, I'm Melissa Starker. Thanks for listening.